0: It was 2001 and Robert Clement is sitting in his Sydney home watching a uh, documentary about unclaimed lottery tickets when all of a sudden one of the stories strikes him as peculiarly familiar. It's a story about an unclaimed lottery ticket for $3.3 million for the Oz Lotto in Australia, the Oz Lotto game, which was a game that Robert played every week. It's a story about an unclaimed ticket from four years earlier, from September 1997, which was a time in Robert's life when he would have been playing that game every week. And as he watched the show progress, they posted the winning numbers on the screen. And if you can imagine it, they were literally the numbers that Robert played every single week. He rushed to uh, the diary that he kept of all of his lottery tickets. He didn't have the actual ticket, but he had recorded in his diary the last five numbers of the serial number, the ticket number in his diary for that week. He had an unclaimed lottery prize of $3.3 million. He says he now remembers that that was a really difficult time in his life. He was under a lot of stress. He was afraid he was going to lose his house. He was prepping to go in for heart surgery, and he just that week forgot to check his numbers. So he picked up the phone. He called the Lottery Gaming Commission and said, hey, listen, this is my situation. I have the end of the serial number for my winning ticket from that week for $3.3 million. And they uh, declined his claim. So in 2001, Robert Clement took the um, Australian Gaming Corporation to court and sued for his winnings, and fought his court case for 14 years, spent every dime he had trying to claim his winnings, until in 2014, a judge dismissed his case for the last time, saying there was insufficient evidence to award him the money. (laughs) Can you imagine this situation? Like, We spend so much of our lives trying not to do something that's just going to screw everything up. Here it is, Robert Clement sitting on his couch realizing for the first time in his life that it's actually what he didn't do that messed everything up for him. And I suspect that that reality is as true for us as those who look to follow Jesus Christ, that sometimes it's not what we do, but what we don't do that messes with our life of faith. This week, um, we're going to be studying in the Stories of the Cross series, we're going to be studying the story of Pontius Pilate. The man who tried Jesus' case on behalf of the Roman government. His story begins in Matthew 27, starting in verse 1. It says this Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, Pilate was like a low ranking government official in the Roman empire who had been assigned by the emperor to try and keep some sort of law in order to try and keep the peace in this remote and often rebellious province called Judea in which the city of Jerusalem was stationed. He served there from AD 26 to AD 36 for an entire decade. Um, The Jewish leaders hated Pilate. He, um, was entirely insensitive to Jewish religious sensitivities. Like the time when he imported under the cover of night, all sorts of Roman military banners that he stationed around the city. And each one was emblazoned with the image of the emperor, which the Jewish religious community would have considered to be idolatrous. They, they freaked out on Pilate. Pilate could be cruel. Like the time... Um, he sent undercover soldiers to infiltrate a a mob of protesting Samaritans in order to club them into silence and submission. There were times the Bible tells the story, refers to the story of a time when Pilate slaughtered a group of Galileans who were worshiping at the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. But Pilate was also a weak-willed kind of a guy, a vacillating sort of a figure. You see, your, your job is to keep the peace through a strong arm of law and order. And yet, if you push too hard, you can incite civil unrest and riot on the other end. And so you have to find this magical balancing point of keeping the people happy, but also imposing enough force to keep them straight. And Pilate didn't really do a great job of getting that right on either side. He often ended up just giving in to the Jewish leaders after he had already pressed in too hard. But this was the man that the Jewish leaders had to bring Jesus if they were going to have him executed. You see, the, the Jewish People had lost the right to implement their own death penalties in the first century of Israel. The only person who could sentence Jesus to death was Pilate. So the chief priests bring Jesus to Pilate. And it says in verse 11 that Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. "No." it's kind of a roundabout way of saying that it's probably not how I would say it, but you're close enough. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. The way a trial would have happened in front of Pilate, Pilate would first question the witness. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered to Pilate, you know, I guess, if you want to say it that way. And then he would have allowed the accusers their moment to sort of bring their charges against the defendant, and he would have invited the defendant to defend himself against the charges, except to Pilate's amazement, here is a man brought to trial, uh, accused of treason, basically confesses to it, but when the accusers press in with all sorts of extra accusations, he refuses to defend himself. He refuses to fight for his life. Now Pilate is in somewhat of an awkward situation. Because on the one hand, he would have experienced an extraordinary pressure to convict Jesus of treason. Pressure by the muckety-mucks back in head office at Rome. See, the first century in the province of Judea around Jerusalem was filled with political revolutionaries and prophetic figures who said that God had told them that he was about to set Israel free from oppression to Rome. And and Rome had a pretty harsh policy of crucifying every single one of them. By the thousands, they had crucified political revolutionaries before Jesus. And by the thousands, they would crucify political revolutionaries after Jesus. The expectation would have been that if somebody is claiming to be the rightful leader of the king of the Jews in opposition to Caesar, that person should die. And that's why the chief priest brought Jesus to Pilate. Yet on the other side, Pilate was experiencing some personal pressure to acquit Jesus. Truth be told, Pilate didn't believe these charges for a second. When he asks, are you the king of the Jews? If you read the question in in the Greek language, the word you is sort of in the emphatic position at the front of the sentence. Essentially, Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, you? (laughs) You're the king of the Jews? He doesn't believe it for a second. In fact... He knows that these are trumped up charges. Down in verse 18, it says, For Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests and elders had handed Jesus over to him. This was some sort of intra-Jewish power struggle or squabble between a group that was, you know, Jesus and a group that was jealous about how influential and popular Jesus had become. Pilate knew this whole thing was a joke. And then there was that episode with Pilate's wife in verse 19. It says when while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now the Romans believed that the gods communicated to people through dreams And Pilate's wife, he's sitting on the judgment seat, the judicial bench. He's trying his first case of the day. And his wife sends him a message that says, I've just been awoken in a nightmare from the gods affirming this man's innocence. You should have absolutely nothing to do with him. The gods themselves are affirming Jesus' innocence. And so here he is, stuck. If he convicts Jesus, he will be sending an innocent man to his death. If he acquits Jesus, he will be inciting a riot and probably getting himself in trouble with folks back at head office. What Pilate needs is a way out of this situation and he finds it in the crowd that is gathering in front of him. You see, the judicial bench, this wasn't like a a courtroom. Pilate would have been trying Jesus' case on on this elevated platform called a bema that was outside the governor's residence in Jerusalem. And from early in the morning, the crowds would gather in front of the platform and they would listen. They they would either be folks who had a, a case to bring before the court themselves who were looking for judgment or just folks who wanted to stand in the gallery and watch the proceedings. But this crowd is beginning to gather around Pilate and he sees his opportunity to get out of this situation. In verse 15, it says, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate puts the question to the crowd themselves. Because there was this annual thing that they did that Pilate kind of as a gesture of goodwill to sort of try and earn back some of the favor of the people. Every year at Passover time, he would pardon a political prisoner. And he would pardon the prisoner that the crowd had requested. Now they had already made arrangements for him to pardon this man named Jesus Barabbas. It was kind of a local hero, a Robin Hood type. He was a Jewish nationalistic freedom fighter who the people believed was really going to fight to set Israel free from Roman oppression. It says he was well known, that he was famous, that he was popular even. But as Pilate thinks back just a few days, when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem for the first time, He remembers what a spectacle he heard that was. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and suddenly the whole thing becomes like a parade route. People are lining both sides of the street. It's like a street party. People are singing and dancing and celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And Pilate begins to wonder, is this Jesus even more popular than Jesus Barabbas. And if he is, maybe the crowd will go for releasing this Jesus rather than Jesus Barabbas. So in verse 20, it says, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. So which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Pilate is stunned. How can, they, how can they choose Barabbas ahead of what seems to be one of the most popular public figures in all of Israel? And so he looks at the crowd in verse 22. He says, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. They demand Barabbas and Pilate is stunned. So he says, well, what do you want me to do with this guy? And they said, well, execute him. Execute him. On what charge? Pilate hasn't even handed down a verdict on this charge of treason. Jesus does not have a guilty charge, a guilty verdict against him yet. And so he says to the crowd, on what charge would you like me to execute this guy? What on earth has he done that is worthy of death? And they don't even respond. They don't give him a legal argument or rationale or suggest other charges to be brought against Jesus. They just yell all the more, crucify him. Now, you got to imagine the situation that Pilate is in. The chief priests have brought him someone that he believes to be innocent on these trumped up charges of treason, and they're demanding Jesus' execution. Pilate doesn't believe the charge and the gods have apparently already confirmed this man's innocence so he turns to the crowd but the crowd who doesn't even understand why jesus is on trial why he's been arrested the crowd just starts yelling for jesus execution despite the fact that he hasn't been proven guilty of any charge and yet Pilate can sense the situation is getting out of control. In verse 24, it says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but in that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. He said, it is your responsibility. Pilate sees that there's no reasoning with this crowd. And in fact, a riot is beginning to, To break out, and if he doesn't do something soon, civil unrest is going to erupt in the city of Jerusalem during Passover time, the one thing Pilate was hoping to avoid. And so he gets this basin of water and he washes his hands and he says, Listen, this is on you, it's not on me. And he gives them what they want. In verse 26, he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate, afraid of making the wrong decision about Jesus, afraid of the consequences, should he weigh in himself on Jesus' innocence or guilt, chooses instead to do nothing. The irony in the story is incredible. All the way through the narrative, Pilate is referred to as the governor, but he's not governing anything. In fact, all the way through the story, it's clear that the chief priests and the elders are actually the ones who are responsible for all the action in the story. In the story, Pilate sits on the judgment seat, but he does no judging. It's the crowd who is the judge and the jury, and they're the ones calling for the executioner. At the end of the story, Pilate washes his hands and calls himself innocent. Though he unjustly condemns a man who's truly innocent to his death. And all because Pilate was choosing not to decide what to do with Jesus. All because Pilate was trying to do nothing. And that was the source of all of Pilate's and Jesus' problems. And I sometimes wonder how much our lives of faith are sometimes dictated by our desire. To not get too involved by our desire to do nothing. As I started to think about this week, I began to think that it is probably, I mean, it certainly is true as I look at my life at various times in the past. It's probably true of all of us at some point in our life of faith. It is, I think, probably true of some of us in many of our lives of faith, that our faith is actually driven by a desire to not get too involved. To live a life of faith, as I was thinking about this week, to live a life of faith that is more geared around kind of a religious going through the motions that makes sure that we never actually personally get too involved or too invested in what it means to follow Jesus, right? We do all the programs. We do all the right things, just like Pilate executed all of the behaviors that he was supposed to do as the judge. You know, we attend services and we go to life group and we volunteer in an anchor cause or volunteer in the community or both. We maybe even give financially, probably read our Bible from time to time and pray. And we kind of, we kind of do all of the programmed religiously kinds of things without, really ever, like our um, friends in recovery will say, we do the program without ever working the program. Without ever actually investing ourselves, committing, engaging wholeheartedly in a life of faith. We kind of do what Pilate did and sort of try and keep Jesus out here at, at arm's length, if you will. And we end up living kind of a, an assembly line sort of faith. We stand there and we do all the right things. We're engaged in all the behaviors that we're supposed to be doing. But our heart isn't really in it. We're sort of keeping Jesus at bay by trying not to get too involved. I think for others of us, or maybe the same ones of us at other times in our life, we treat Jesus the way Pilate treated Jesus in the sense that we think that the whole point of our life with Jesus is about trying not to get stuff wrong. I, I lived my uh, life of faith in this mode for a long, long time where I was a lot clearer when it came to you know, what it meant to follow Jesus. I was a lot clearer on the stuff you aren't supposed to do than I was on the stuff that you are supposed to do. It was kind of a, a rules-based sin avoidance sort of faith where I was, all of my energy, it felt like, was going towards just trying not to screw up my faith by doing the wrong thing. Trying not to believe the wrong thing, trying not to do the wrong thing, trying not to practice my faith in the wrong way, just, just trying not to screw it up. And I think... At the end of the day, what lies behind both of those sorts of approach to faith is the same kind of motivation. And it's a motivation of fear. That in the one instance, there's probably uh, what you could call a fear of commitment. Um, this is what Pilate was afraid of. If Pilate steps forward and renders a verdict on Jesus, he is afraid of the consequences of committing himself one way or the other in an opinion about Jesus, right? Because there would be consequences. If he acquits Jesus, the re- chief priests and the, and the religious leaders report him back to his superiors and he gets in trouble. Maybe uh, uh, you know a riot is incited. If he convicts Jesus, he has to deal with with his own conscience, and maybe even deal with the gods who have made it clear that Jesus is innocent, that there's this, there's this fear that if I really commit to this thing, it's going to have some real life consequences in my life. And I think that that's true of our life of faith. If you passionately commit to a life of following Jesus, it changes your life. It changes your relationships. It changes your lifestyle. It changes your life financially. It changes your it just, it changes the way you experience pleasure because there are just some things you just got to agree that you're not going to do anymore. And it just, there are consequences. Things change when you commit to following Jesus. And so I think some people choose to, they prefer this sort of half-hearted religious going through the motions because they don't really want to walk away from Jesus, but they're not entirely sure they want to absorb the consequences of what it would mean to sell out to Jesus either. And so they just try and kind of have their faith cake and eat it too. I think a lot of us live in this space, whether we mean to or not. I a friend who used to come here who is a self-proclaimed uh, atheist, self-identified atheist. And when I asked him once, I think I've said this before, but when I asked him once why he never seriously considered putting his faith in Jesus, he said, why would I, when you've never seriously considered putting your faith in Jesus? And I said, what do you mean? He said, come on. He said, if you genuinely believed the stuff that you say about Jesus, your life would look very different than it does right now. And he's right. Because we play games with what it means to follow Jesus. Because of fear of what it looks like to genuinely commit. I think the life of faith, that's sort of like rule-based sin management, rule-based sin avoidance where we just try to not do the wrong thing. That's just a fear of failure. I mean, think about Pilate. Pilate is afraid that regardless of the verdict that he renders, he's afraid that he's going to get it wrong. He's afraid that people are going to judge him as a failure for what he has decided to be true about Jesus. And he just doesn't want to get it wrong. And I think a lot of us live in that space where the, the last thing that we want to do is screw up our life of faith. We don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to sin. We don't want to believe the wrong stuff. We don't want to practice our faith in the wrong way. We, we don't want to fail at following Jesus. And so we pour all of our energy into just trying not to do any of the stuff that That we're not supposed to do. And honestly friends. If that's the definition of a life of faith. Then this table right here. Is a better Christian than any of us will ever be. Because this table will never do any of the things. That it's not supposed to do. And the tragedy is. That when you frame faith. As a life of just trying not to screw it up you miss the whole point of faith. When you frame faith as a half-hearted going through the religious motions, you miss the entire point of faith because the central command of faith, the central command of Jesus is not be religious and it's not don't sin. The central command of a life of following Jesus is love to proactively and passionately love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength with all of who we are and all of everything that we have with every morsel of energy we have during the day to pour our entire lives into living a life of passionate loving devotion to God that spills out of our lives in a passionate loving devotion to the people that god has put all around us to loving everybody else as much as we love ourselves that's a life of faith it is a life of love that is rooted in the love that god has lived out for us right the only definition the bible has ever offered for love is a picture of jesus hanging on the cross that's what love is Love is the God who left everything behind to come down to rescue us, to be with us, to be God with us in the midst of whatever's going on in our lives. Love is the life of Jesus where he devotes every moment of every day to seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, to see the world become a little bit more of the place that the world would be if God were just allowed to have his way. Love is Jesus choosing to give up his life on on the cross for you and for me so that we could experience the forgiveness and transformation, the healing and the restoration that comes through the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. That's what love is. And that's the love that we are called to live out. The love that with which God fills us up when we Passionately devote our lives to him spills out of our lives into other people because the Bible says that God so loved the world, that he so loved us, that he sent his son so that everyone who would entrust their whole life and their whole heart to Jesus, they would get to experience life the way that it was always meant to be. The central command of faith has nothing to do with what you don't do. It has everything to do with, with the life that you are meant to live. Which is a life of love. And we're going to mess it up. (laughs) We live our lives afraid of doing the wrong thing. And guess what? You can, just look at Pilate, you can do the wrong thing by doing nothing. Nothing can be the wrong thing. Right? A couple of weeks ago, I talked about this Anglican prayer of confession, part of which says we confess, we confess that we have sinned by the things we've left undone. If the whole point of the Christian faith is not to avoid sin, but to engage in love, then every time we fail to engage in love, we sin. Right? It's not just the stuff that we do that becomes sin. It is the loving stuff that we leave undone that becomes equally sinful. Right? The, the, so the, I guess to this regard, this table will never be a better Christian than any one of us because this table has never done anything loving for anybody. Well, it's holding up my Bible in my water, but other than that tiny you know, gift to me. It is generally an unloving piece of furniture. But the whole point is this: you can't, you can't avoid failure by choosing to not do things, because not doing things can be failure in itself if we are leaving loving things undone. And guess what? We all do it. You cannot live a life of sin avoidance because we are all sinners to the core. We always Choose unloving thoughts. We choose unloving words. We choose to do unloving things, and we fail to do the loving things that we know we could step in and do. We all do it. There's no way to avoid getting it wrong. That's my point. And so Martin Luther, the reformer who lived in the 1500s, writing a letter to his friend Philip who was very concerned about sin to Philip Martin Luther said, now don't worry about sin, sin boldly and believe that the grace of Jesus is bolder still. Um, he wasn't saying, who cares how you live? He wasn't saying, who cares if you sin? No, sin is destructive. Sin is death. That's why Jesus says, you know, get this stuff out of your life. It's ruining your life. It's ruining your relationships. It's ruining your soul. It- sin is bad. Martin Luther wasn't saying, don't worry about sin. Martin Luther was saying, in your pursuit of following Jesus, we're all going to get it wrong sometimes. We're all going to get it wrong. And if that's called sin, then Martin Luther says, follow Jesus passionately and boldly. And if that means you get it wrong sometimes, then just sin boldly and trust that the grace of Christ is bolder still for Christ is victorious over sin and death and the world. He says, if in your passionate pursuit of following Christ, you sometimes get some of it wrong, the grace of Christ covers over all of that. And that is a relief because guess what? we all get it wrong we believe the wrong stuff we do the wrong stuff we practice the wrong stuff individually as a community as a church we get it wrong as a leadership we get it wrong i get it wrong we get it wrong the question is not have you followed jesus perfectly the question is is the central driving passion of your life to follow jesus And to live in the grace of Christ that overwhelms you with forgiveness when you don't get it perfect. The Bible says perfect that the one who lives in fear of failure, in fear of punishment for getting it wrong, that person hasn't yet understood the perfect love of God because the perfect love of God drives out all fear. Don't be afraid to follow Christ boldly. The grace of Christ is bigger than all the ways that you and I are going to mess it up. Just passionately pursue a life of loving jesus a life of loving your neighbor and a life of loving the world and let god sort out the rest don't be like Pilate. don't be like robert clement don't let your life be wrecked by the stuff you don't do Instead, commit yourself to a life of passionately loving God with all that you are and all that you have, passionately loving everybody as much as you love yourself and let Jesus Christ sort out the rest. That's what we are invited into. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we get it wrong all the time. And we know you know that because that's why you sent Jesus to the cross. And yet we revel in your grace and your forgiveness. Father, we don't want to get it wrong. But we want to live lives that are consumed with loving you, loving each other, and loving the world in proactive and passionate ways. Would you make us that kind of community, bold and unafraid to radiate your love to the world so that the world can see in us the love that you have poured out for us through Jesus on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.